Dr. Stephen Readers founded MVM Partners in 1997. They invest in high-growth businesses with bases in London and Boston. Interestingly, he's had three different lives. Firstly, he obtained a BA in Natural Sciences from Cambridge before getting his medical degree from Oxford and then training as a doctor in some of the UK's premier institutes, such as John Radcliffe, Guy's and Queen Square. In part two, he became a clinical researcher across both Oxford and some of the US's greatest research houses. For example, just in the infancy of his career, he discovered PKD1, a gene linked to polycystic kidney disease, the seminal paper for which was published in Nature in 1985. Finally, in the third act, he moved into the world of business and investment, in which he tackled how to translate some of these discoveries into great businesses that could benefit people at scale. He was also the first investor and acting CEO of UpToDate. In this interview, I try and unpack what made him able to excel in all three acts, and also why a flourishing doctor and a clinical academic would move into the world of investment. I hope you enjoy. And at that point, I worked incredibly hard. I tried to absorb as much medical knowledge as I possibly could. You know, I used to do locums at weekend all at weekends all over the country. I couldn't get enough of it. And after after two or three years of that, I started to wonder whether I could do this for a lifelong career and whether it was going to become be different enough, you know, to sustain me for what would be another 40 plus years. And at that moment, um, I sort of more or less decided to leave medicine and do law, read law. And uh, so David Weatherall, who was my boss, called me in and he was sort of annoyed <laughs> and upset uh, and thought it was crazy. Uh, and he said, why don't you go in the labs, which were across the corridor from his office in Oxford, and why don't you just do some molecular biology or something, figure a plan, figure a program out. So I went down to the library and uh, I was sitting there in the comfortable armchairs wondering what on earth I could do in science, having really no molecular genetics, molecular biology. And on the table was a copy of Nature in which Jim Gazella, uh, then at, and I think now for, for all I know, Mass General, had mapped the gene for uh, Huntington's career. And I thought, I wonder if I could do that. And having been done most of the work I had done in nephrology and seen a lot of patients with polycystic kidney disease, I, I decided, well, I'll just do polycystic kidney disease. I'll do the same thing. I'll find the gene for polycystic kidney disease. It seems like a doable thing. So I went back upstairs and told him I was going to do this. And remarkably, he said, go right ahead. And gave me a little space in the lab opposite. And there were some extremely good people there, Doug Higgs uh, and Kay Davies, who was working on muscular dystrophy. Uh, and they were very helpful. They didn't see it at all unusual that someone with absolutely no skills in molecular biology, no experience, and and frankly a bit, you know, poor with his hands, uh, they didn't seem to think it extraordinary that I'd be allowed to do this. And so I did. And... Uh, from there moved into molecular genetics and uh, got a bit lucky and I mapped the gene for polycystic kidney disease and suddenly everyone wanted to talk to me and very soon after that I got a number of job offers in the US and I thought it would be interesting to go to the US um, and so ended up at Yale and ran a fairly substantial lab on behalf of and paid for by Howard Hughes which is the golden ticket in the US. If you get a Howard Hughes position, the money just comes flooding in. After about 
a few months, I started to think about forming companies because it seemed to me obvious that this molecular genetics and the mapping of genes would someday result in the ability to make pharmaceuticals based on what you'd learn about the underlying mechanisms of disease. It's not just pure genetic diseases, but, you know, complex diseases. And I worked on hypertension, worked on all-port syndrome, worked on polycystic kidney disease, a bunch of other things, and started to set up or help set up companies uh, to exploit the, the, the methods that I was learning and was using in my lab in molecular genetics. And again, you know, in the U.S., then as now, um, people were very open to that. Uh, and they gave me help. They introduced me to venture capitalists and people in the know and business people, which enabled me to move into setting up companies and eventually uh, a sort of a business career. So that's the early few years. There's a point in your story in which you're in the library and you read about someone else mapping a gene for a condition and then you think, why can't I map the gene uh, for polycystic kidney disease? And I want to just ask you a little bit about that because I think for a normal person, it might be the case that in your position, we're thinking, why don't I go do an audit? Why don't I go work for someone else's lab? Why don't I go do something incremental? And you at that time had the idea that why don't I go map, map a gene? And that paper goes on to be published in, in Nature itself. And I was just wondering what, what went into that what, 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 what was it about you that meant that you thought, wow, why don't I go do this huge thing rather than why don't I just go do something incremental? I think a lot of it is that within the human population or the population of doctors, there's a quite a range of willingness to take risk. And a lot of people, and I had many friends like this in medical school with me, they got the job, you know, they were the registrar in the Nuffield Department of Medicine. And then they sort of saw the pathway. Well, you you know, you've got so far, you've got to be the senior registrar, and then maybe you'll become a consultant or something. And they're very adverse to taking decisions and doing things that could uh, uh, cause them to fall off of, of that ladder, if you like. And there are other people, and I was one of them, I don't know why, um, who... Don't fear that risk. You know, I never thought that if I couldn't be a successful consultant in internal medicine in the British system, you know, it would be the end of the world. I would just end up doing something else. And so I don't know what, what it is, but I think if you do find yourself as a person that is looking outside the tram lines and is willing to make career decisions that are somewhat risky because I it could have been that it all fell apart I could have arrived at Yale nothing went well you know could have could have easily happened but if you are like that you know I think then you want to seize those opportunities and what you have to do is you have to look for opportunities to solve problems and I think looking back one of the key things is to look at everything you touch it doesn't matter you know if you're the lowly house surgeon in a provincial hospital that's not great. Maybe those don't exist anymore, but they used to. Uh, look at everything you touch. It Does it make sense? What could I do to change that? Um, just everything you touch, you look at, and you will come up with ideas. And if you're willing to take the risk and push hard, you, you will be able to find things to do that you may never solve those particular questions you've come up with, but it will introduce you to people and ideas that will lead you to other careers. And uh, not everyone wants to do that, but I think a lot of people do. 
Um, I don't know what it's like to, to be honest today in the UK. I've got a lot of friends in medicine, but I do feel that in the US that the classical medical career is not as attractive as it was in the 70s. I think it's a very interesting phenomenon that's going on where we used to think we had almost complete liberty to determine a patient's plan. And there was a price the patients paid for that, which was it wasn't very systematic. Now, I think what's happened is lots of medical care has become protocolized. And you're forced into very specific protocols based on, you know, the input criteria for each patient. And I think that has detracted from some of the excitement in medicine for many people, not all people. Some people enjoy the interaction with patients and their colleagues and doing a good job and doing the right thing very, very well. But for those of us who are always looking at sort of the edges of it, um, I think it might have changed. And so I think I do meet a lot of people that really want to move out of medicine. And as I say, I think the way to do that is to just look at everything you touch, every patient. What, you know, does this make sense? Everyone tells me this is what's always, it's always done like this, but does it make sense? Is there another way? And I think if you keep doing that, you will, you will have, you'll get some questions and then maybe you can try and answer them. So I, I think there's a lot of opportunity, actually. I want to touch a little bit on your risk-taking and appetite for risk. And broadly, you know, maybe in the context that you described, but maybe throughout the rest of your career as well, how you've thought about risk. And are there times in which having an appetite for risk has got you in trouble? I don't think it's ever got me in trouble. Maybe I've been very lucky, probably have been very lucky. Um, because to sort of take the story forward another step. So I was at Yale, uh, and after three or four years at Yale, I, I sort of felt that I could see the future in, in molecular genetics. I could see it playing out. And it was quite attractive because I was, you know, doing quite well and I had a large lab and everyone wanted to be me because I had this Howard Hughes position in the Boyer Center for Molecular Medicine, a beautiful building. Um, but I wasn't enjoying it as much. It wasn't as different day to day. You know, when you start something, it's different day to day. And then it gradually, the days get more and more similar. And that was happening to me. And I was doing these companies, um, getting involved. And then I, bizarrely, I was invited to give a talk at Cold Spring Harbor by a geneticist at Baylor College of Medicine who couldn't make it because the plane was canceled. He was much more important than I was. And he called me knowing I lived close enough to Cold Spring Harbor, which is on Long Island. And he said, could you step in? I said, what is it? And he said, well, every year, uh, Jim Watson of Watson Crick holds a meeting for these CEOs and chairmen of the top world's top, I think it was 30 pharmaceutical companies. And they all come in their helicopters and whatnot. And they spend a couple of days, you know, at Cold Spring Harbor and they talk DNA at a time when most pharmaceutical companies didn't know what DNA was. He said, could I go down there and talk? And I thought, oh, do I have to do this? You know, it's just a long drive. I've got to get on the ferry. Uh, you know, it's a bit of a mess. But I, I did it because as a favor. And uh, so there I was talking to all these great leaders of industry, you know, telling them about 
the future of molecular genetics and debunking some of the myths that were going around propagated by scientists at that time saying in five years you'll know all your DNA and everything will be sorted out and it will be wonderful and I said I didn't think that was right at all in fact I would be very careful if I were them disclosing any of their DNA to anyone until they know there's a world where insurance doesn't depend on your pre-existing conditions so I had that talk and two bankers uh, came up to me um and said, well, they've got a job for me. And would I like to go and work in New York in a merchant bank, in a private equity shop? And uh, I took that opportunity. And that could have gone very badly wrong uh, because I had no skill in business, no skill in finance. Um, And uh, that was a huge leap, really, because that was a leap away from not medicine and science into a different field. And at that point, I was 38 or something. So I had a bit of effect. I had an investment in what I was doing, but I took that chance. So you you do take a risk and it's not always going to work well. Maybe I was just lucky, but that did work out. I want to reference an interview you did in 1988, and which was then with Richard Smith, who would go on to become editor in chief of the BMJ. And in it, I think you are a youngish doctor and emerging clinical academic. And He's getting your thoughts on academia and a few other things. And one of the really interesting quotes, I think, from that was you're talking about medical students and people around you who want to go into merchant banking. And you say, I can understand that. The city is exciting. The work there may be nothing very worthwhile, but it's exciting. I want to ask two questions based on that. A, presumably something changed in your mind which meant that you then went on to go into venture capital and i would be curious about that sort of decision making and uh, and and whether you you kind of developed your view on that and then the second point was this whole notion of doing good in venture capital or in finance more broadly what are your thoughts on that in general because finance and the whole industry of investment i think it's it's got a bit of a negative rep, especially in the world of medicine. Um, and I, yeah, I'd just love to hear you talk about that. Yeah, well, that's an interesting question. I think that though, I've, actually, I didn't remember I'd ever given that interview, um, but it's a bit scary to think that's out there somewhere and you found it. Uh, firstly, I don't think I quite knew the difference between investment banking and merchant banking. I think maybe in the UK, the words are often used interchangeably, but... Uh, what I was really referring to was what I call investment banks, which are advisors to other people's transactions. And I distinct, distinguish that from venture capital or private equity, where you are a principal, i.e. you are managing money and you will succeed or otherwise by your success in doing that, as opposed to arranging two other people to come together. I do think venture capital uh, is an extremely valuable activity. In fact, I think it's probably the most valuable activity because what you're doing is you're look at, we look at something like 600 companies a year across the team in Boston and London that my little company has, MVM. Uh, so about 600 companies, and we're trying to find those technologies that um, will make a difference to the point where we make money out of them. Make no no mistake, we have to make money out of the investments. It's not philanthropy. Why is that? Well, because the people who give us the money that are the big banks, the large pension funds, foundations, and so on, they need that money. That's 
that's what they're there to do. So you, so we've got to make money out of it, but we conclude that you can make money most easily by doing something that makes a difference. Because it make, if it makes a difference to patients and the system of medicine, then it will be successful most likely and you'll make money and you'll do some good. But I do think the activity of selecting amongst those 600 companies and, uh, and putting the money where it's most useful is actually really valuable. Very, very few products come out of universities. And I used to have all this data to hand, but at one point when I was asked this question about six or seven years ago, the most valuable technology ever to come out of a university in terms of the, you know, the value it created for that university was Gatorade, which had come out of the University of Florida. Now, since then, the Medical Research Council in the UK, I think, has got you know, the best-selling drug in the world should be Humira, may not be today, but it has been, maybe COVID vaccines have displaced it. Uh, but Humira is one of the biggest wins of all time, which came out of work done at the Medical Research Council at, in the LMB at Cambridge Laboratory of Molecular Biology. But of course, the development of the actual drug and making it safe and putting it into a bottle was done by, by commercial companies. So it you know the step of taking raw science and developing it in many 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 steps into a real product that you can actually use for people or a medical device or a diagnostic whatever that is very valuable work and i think it i i think i make more difference per unit time than i would if i'd stayed as a nephrologist and worked in you know nephrology in a good hospital i i feel that's to, that to be true not to say a good nephrologist isn't doing fantastically good stuff, and we all hope we'll never need a good nephrologist, but some of us will probably. Uh, but I do think that doing venture capital is very valuable. Now, is is working for a big investment bank and merging uh, two pharmaceutical companies together very valuable? Uh, not so sure. Not so sure. I don't feel those mergers and transactions are often particularly valuable or create value some may do some don't but i don't think the work is as useful as what i do that may be hubris but that's how i think well, it's interesting you make the distinction distinction between the work of say m a and other more financey things and your work in vc or in pe and I just wanted to really boil down to like what what value do you think or what specific value do VCs bring to in particular the health ecosystem what kind of things is it is it about sorting those 600 companies and picking the winners and supporting them is it a kind of bench to bedside type thing what what is the value being created taking a small company with a good idea and making something out of it funding it developing the product hiring the people negotiating, navigating, I should say, the regulatory system and, the, and, the, and in the US particularly the reimbursement for the product, the manufacturing, the marketing. is I mean, those are very, very difficult steps. There is almost no job harder in the world than a startup CEO who has to think about funding, taxes, accounts, manufacturing, personnel. He, you know, he or she 
has got to worry about all of that. It's a very, very difficult thing to do. And what we do is we help in that process. It's not just about putting the money to work. It's not just about capitalizing those companies, but we, particularly at MVM, we do a lot of hands-on work, helping management. You know, sometimes they're first-time CEOs and they don't yet know the way of the world. They don't yet know how to position the business, sell the business. They can't be everything to everything. And so we have a team of, you know, I think on our team, we've got what now, four MDs, for example, four PhDs. Um, trained in very, very good places. They've often got experience in consulting. At, uh, I think we've got several from Bain, several from McKinsey, for example, but from other places as well. And, uh, you know, the skill they bring, the experience of having trained in medicine, so they bring that clinical sensibility plus the analytical skills they've learned at a good consulting firm. And then you bring that together to help the company, you know, it adds a lot of value. Not every venture capitalist does that. Some just write the check and stand back. But I do think a lot of them do do that. And uh, they nurture the right people. They keep the maverick CEOs on the tracks and stop them from doing things that are value destructive. Uh, so I think it is a function that, you know, that's why. Why is it that the US is so far ahead in entrepreneurship? Let me ask you a question, because this is maybe overview. Take all, let's leave medicine for a while and talk about the companies that have really changed ordinary life in material ways and created trillions of dollars of value and jobs and wealth. Google, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, Salesforce.com. I could, you know, I could go on. I probably missed some of the good ones, but let's, you know, and you look, make a list of all of those. How many of those are in the US and how many of them are in Europe and, and how many are in China and Japan and other places? Well, there's some good ones in China. There's some good ones in Japan. There are some good ones in Europe, but where are most of them? The US. Why is that? Is it because Americans are smarter? I don't think so. Better educated? Well, that's statistical evidence to the contrary. Uh, no, it's because of the entrepreneurial culture and access to capital. And I think those are two very valuable things. I do think the UK, by the way, is moving very fast towards the position that the US had, has. So I do think the UK is in a very strong position. There's a real entrepreneurial culture. Even the fact that you're doing this interview today, you know, much more likely to be doing it out of the UK than you would be out of Germany, I believe. So I think the UK is in, great, in a great position. But I do think access to capital and the way capital is managed is, was and is a unique, well, over the last 100 years, in the high-risk assets, high-risk investments, such as venture capital, is a, a, is a US phenomenon. In the previous 100 years, you know, it was the great European investment banks, the Warburgs and the Rothschilds and you know the rest of them. But in the last hundred years, it's been a U.S. phenomenon, and I think that is what's generating all these incredible developments, actually, and these new industries and highly efficient, highly productive ways of doing things. From growing up and training in the U.K. and then later now moving to the U.S., what have you noticed about the mindset of people in the U.S. that you think creates this kind of 
innovative flair or, or whatever. What is it, do you think, about their culture or mindset? I think it's a belief in the f- that the future is going to be better. I don't know why Americans think that way, but they do. They believe the future is going to be better and it's going to be exciting and new things will happen. Uh, and you could be anything you want to be. You know, I, I think to some extent that's a bit of a false promise, but that's what American parents tell their kids, a lot of them. You, know, you could be anything you want to be. Whereas when I left the UK, the prevalent view was, um, well, you know, you should sort of live within your abilities. You should sort of know your place. Now, I think the UK has moved very far in the interim period, but there was a sense of that, you know. Don't get too big for your boots. Don't start doing things you shouldn't be doing. Do what you know how to do, you know. Be modest, be sensible. And Americans don't think that way. They want to do something they shouldn't be able to do. And quite a lot fall over doing it. But, but of course, you get people, you know, like Elon Musk and these sorts of people. Of course, they're rare. Not everyone's Elon Musk, but there are a lot of people trying to be Elon Musk. And that's just, I just get excited by it. I, I find it exciting to watch those people, to talk to them, to meet them. I want to track back to your 1988 interview in which you say... Or Richard Smith says that um, he, being you, finds that many doctors and even medical students are hostile to molecular biology. This might, he thought, be because it seems to be reductionist at a time when the fashion is to be more holistic. But this is to fail to grasp the possibilities of the understanding and treatment that molecular biology will open up. When you were talking about currently your company and the MDs, the PhDs on it, and a lot of what you've been talking about I think the the trend or the the phrasing for this kind of thinking is sometimes called first principles thinking, thinking from the ground up, thinking from basic principles. And then there also seems to be people who invest in companies or industries they don't know anything about. And that's sometimes seen as uh, a point of pride because you lose those kinds of shackles of of being in the weeds and uh, and perhaps think laterally about something. And I just wanted to ask why or how you think about your investment hypotheses and things, because it seems to me that it seems very important to you to understand everything from the ground up and to have this almost kind of technocratic or really smart group of people making these decisions when you're looking at these 600 companies or however many you come across. So it's a very general question, but broadly, I just wanted to ask, how do you make these decisions of who to invest in? Well, we start with, well, I start um with an analysis of the product and whether it's going to benefit the patient and the medical system. It's not sufficient just to benefit the patient. It must also help healthcare generally because insurers and governments are paying for it, so they need to be satisfied as well. So an exotic, expensive treatment that delivered a marginal value might be marginally beneficial to the patient, but if it's so expensive, it's not going to work. So, but I personally start with trying to understand, do I really feel that's improving medicine? That's my starting point. And of course, that's because that's where I came from. So I look at it that way. If I'd been a marketer, I might come at it from looking at the market first, but I, I do believe medicine is such a specific industry. The way doctors behave, the way patients think is so difficult to understand if you've never been in it, in my view. A lot of people don't understand that. They don't understand how patients and doctors make decisions, how patients feel about it. So what I look at is I look at a product and I try and understand if that's going to make a 
a significant benefit to healthcare. Should a patient want that? Should a doctor want to use that? And if that's true and we that passes that test, then we have to look at the second order question, which is, or two or three more. One is, is anyone going to be prepared to pay for it? And that depends on the system. It's different in the UK and, and the US, but, but we look at principally the US market. Is, is the US payer, the government through Medicare or the private insurers, are they going to willing, be willing to pay for that? And we have to worry here about another thing, which I think is less important in the UK, which is, will doctors want to do it from an economic perspective? Because if we take a surgical product, let's say, and the rival, pro, the rival procedure is an hour and they get $3,000 and we've got a great new product, but because of the way that reimbursement works, it takes two hours and they get $2,000, they probably won't use that product, a lot of them. So we do have to worry about the commercial imperatives at the doctor level and the payer level. Um, and right now, the US system is overburdened with cost. And I do believe finally uh, it's woken up to the need to provide value for money, which of course we've known in Europe for a long, long time. The so-called concept of uh, you know, quality of life adjusted years bought for, per dollar. But he, that's arrived in the US. So, with, so with those are the second order questions. So first, does the patient benefit? And then does the system benefit? Someone going to pay for it? And then last question is, can we market it? Is there a way to get it into the market? Uh, and that is a quite complicated question, requires a lot of skill and experience to answer that. And that's why in my team, we have people who've worked on many, many, many different companies and they've been involved in marketing plans. And we, we typically, when we look at a product, we might call 20, 30, 40, 50 doctors and we'll ask them. Uh, we randomly select them and then we call them and we try and probe their understanding of this product. Imagine if you had a new product that did this. Uh, you know, we've got a company that does minimally invasive uh, cervical fusion for cervical degeneration. You know, when we made that investment, we had to call lots of doctors and ask them, can you imagine that this is a product? Let me stipulate that there's this new minimally invasive product that through a six millimeter cannula you confuse the cervical spine, take away the pain and the, and the neurological issues. What do you think about that? And then we interview many, many of them and we, we have to take a view. So we've taken a view. I took the view with that, that if I were a patient with cervical degeneration and someone said that I could have two little holes made in the back of my neck and through those small cannulae, I could fuse the facet joints of the spine and I could probably walk home in two days. Uh, how would I like that? And I concluded that any right-minded person, if they thought, thought it was a safe procedure, would, would go for it. So then the question, so, you know, that, so that's why we pursued that investment. And that's how we think about it. Using that approach, those steps, that detail, that kind of um, research stage as well, I've got two questions on that. Are there opportunities that you can miss those kinds of wildcards or are those less likely in industries like healthcare? And secondly, are there times that even with doing all of that, you still come across or you still invest in a company that turns out not to do well? 
Well, both happen. I mean, we missed a lot of good things. Uh, you can't not, you know, you have to miss good things because, you know, you've only got so many, you've, you've got to look at the inputs. And I believe if you're a good investor, you rely on the data, you, you get the data and then you make an informed decision. The hardest thing, though, is management. And it's well known in investing that a good manager can make a good business out of something quite mediocre. And conversely, and sadly, a bad manager can destroy a fantastic product. So that one of the hardest things to judge is, does the management team in place, if you're investing in a company with a management team, do they know how to do it? And if they don't, are you willing to change them and replace them? And can you find someone who is? So that's a very big and difficult thing. So you do make mistakes. You do make mistakes with products as well. You know, the earlier the investments you do, we used to do a lot more very early investments. And that's much harder to predict whether a new, you know, biochemical pathway will result in a drug. Uh, and that takes a different set of skills, uh, more of an analysis of the biology and an intuition around the biology. As you move down the down the pathway towards a product, you're more worried about can you produce it at a reasonable price? Will people buy it? You know, will it pass clinical trials? And will doctors use it in the marketplace? But at any point, you should use evidence to get the right answer. Um, but there are so many risks uh, that you will make mistakes, a lot of, a lot of mistakes. Um, and what you hope is that when you do make a mistake, it wasn't through failure to think about something you should have thought about. It was because there's something unpredictable. You know, the classic example is you have a drug, it's a fantastic concept with a great pathway and you've got great chemistry and you make the drug and go through phase one and phase two and it goes into phase three. And suddenly you get a call one day that five patients have got uh, raised liver enzymes and bilirubin, which is usually fatal. And can you have, could you have predicted that? Probably not. If you make that mistake or that happens to you, you can sleep pretty well. But of course, if you then go back and find there were hints of liver issues that you didn't notice or brushed under the carpet or didn't make an adequate inquiry about, then you should feel bad. In your decades of investment, were there any lessons or mistakes that you thought you were making that you've kind of learned from? Were there any problems in your decision making or, th or things you picked up? I think a few things. When I started, I think I underappreciated the complexities of taking particularly molecular biology ideas all the way through to a drug, the time it takes, the cost. And, uh, you know, I, that was just naivety. Of course, I don't think anyone knew the answer because no one had really taken a new, bio, you know, a, a gene and said, this gene is important in cystic fibrosis. Let's find out what, what it codes for. Let's find out how that works. Let's sort the phys physiology out. Let's sort the pathophysiology out. Then we'll make a drug for it. I mean, it was, you know, no one really had that all mapped down. But I think I, we did make mistakes like that. But the other big category of mistakes is to underestimate the human factor, to underestimate how important it is that you have good people. You know, as I say, it's you can't make a great company with a great product with people that aren't great. You just, you'll never do it. And so the human factor, the, the ability of humans to navigate issues and overcome them 
and find find ways round is is incredible, but a very few people can really do that. You know, that is the ultimate skill. That's why, you know, I'm not saying old Elon Musk is worth, what is he worth today, uh, 130 billion or something ridiculous. But, you know, you've got to give him credit, however much you like him or don't like him as a person. He, you know, it's almost, a, he's, a, he's a force of nature and he's driven that, or two companies, several companies. He's driven those companies by just willpower and smart decision making um, and created a, a whole new, new industry, really, in electric cars and maybe in space for all I know. And that is just extraordinary. And he's just, you know, the people like him uh, are very, very, very few and far between. And so that skill, you know, you have to be undaunted by failure. You have to be super energetic. You have to have massive self-confidence. You have to have a lot of properties that enable you to overcome all the issues that taking new technologies to market uh, involve, actually. And how do you find those types of people as either colleagues people to work with or as employees to hire them well of course as a venture capitalist owning the shares of the company you want them to do what you say and of course you have a view one of the challenges is that you also have to realize that if you hire super smart i mean i but i shouldn't think elon musk has ever taken an instruction from anybody so of course it, you know there is a dichot a dilemma there which is you want them to do what you think is the right thing knowing but if you've got the right person, they probably know more than you do about what is the right thing, and you've got to give them a chance to to use their skills. So that is a, I think that is a genuine uh, problem, and that's why evaluating people is so important in investing because you're trying to judge. They want to do this, I want to do that. Is their idea better than my idea? Is this the point where I try and interfere, or is this the point where I let them run run with that idea? That's really hard, I think. I some, I very, I'm very often in meetings and I come out and I can't really decide whether that individual is really, really good or actually probably quite dangerous, you know, and potentially could lose all your money for you. It's very, it's very difficult. And there is a school of investing that says, don't tell me what the product is and the science. I'm not interested. I just need to know the people and my skill. Uh, and there are investors like this. They just pick the people. And if you believe you can do that and you can do it, it's a very, I think it's extremely powerful. If you are able to discern those very rare people that have this entrepreneurial ability plus the stamina and endurance, then that is a way to, to go. You know, you don't necessarily need to get too much um, into the detail of it. There was a, an investor called Frank Bonzel who was a founder of NEA, he wrote a book called Billion Dollar Molecule about the founding of Vertex. I don't know if it's still in print, but if any of your listeners want to hear about, you know, an interesting story about the generation of new companies. So Vertex was, a, I guess it got going maybe late 80s, I suppose. And, you know, Frank's modus operandi was to spend a lot of time with people and judge the people. And he was very successful. And was involved in many successes of which Vertex was just one, but uh, that's been written out, you know, as a book and worth worth reading or listening to. What have you learned about leadership throughout your career? Uh, I'm not sure I'm a particularly good leader. In fact, I don't think I am a particularly good leader. I'm not the person to answer. I, I watch it and I can see people that are good leaders. I'm not particularly good at it. I don't think that's my skill. I tend to probably get in the way too much. 
Leading's a bit like parenting. You probably don't, haven't had the pleasure of having teenage children yet. No. But uh, there's an element of that to it. You know, you're trying to get, <laughs> you're trying to get them to do what you want, but they're resistant at every stage. And usually leading in a commercial sense is not like that because hopefully you've got a, an alignment of the, you know, the people that you work with want to do what you want to do. But again, that's another skill. You know, leading leadership is another skill. As a venture capitalist, you're not really involved with a lot of people because you're not managing a big organization. The leadership skills become harder as the organization gets bigger because you're delegating all the time. So you need to impart your your principles and your uh, objectives. You know, my team, our team, I should say, is, I don't know, 15 people. So that's not a huge challenge of leadership. Of course, they're very smart and they're very independent. But uh, I, I think you should find someone else to ask about leadership. It's not my, uh, I'm not sure I'm any good at it, to be honest. One of my goals going into this interview was to un- try and understand, and I think I have to some degree, but to try and understand how someone can do very, very well in some seemingly unconnected field. So for you, that was both clinically, then as a clinical academic, and then as an investor. And to phrase the question, I think what I'm trying to ask is that, is it the case that different fields, really, there's, it's the same formula, it's the same sorts of things that allow you to do well in all of them? Or is it the case that they're all very different things, and you had to be a very different person for all of these roles? How was it that you were able to kind of flourish in seemingly different roles, basically? Well, I think every every role I've had, so I've had three careers, if you like, medicine, science, and finance, or investing. So there are different skills. Um, hard work, uh, willing to put extra time in, is, I think, common to everything you do. There are no good scientists. Well, no, it's not strictly true. There are very few good scientists in modern science that don't work absolutely flat out. Um I suspect there are very good, very successful doctors that don't work extremely hard. And I I know that there are very few investors that don't work extremely hard. So that, I think that's a given. I think working hard is is everything. And I'm not sure I've worked as hard as I should have done. But I do think you make opportunities arise when you work very hard. I think what I did when I was a junior doctor was I did work very, very hard. And I think that really paid off because, you know, I, when I chose my senior house officer jobs, I tried to find the hardest ones there were on the grounds that if I did the hardest ones, I'd learn the fastest. So at that time, the hardest one was, was um, St. Thomas's ITU. That was thought to be the hardest one, you know. It was one in two for four months and one in one for two months or something like that. <laughs> something absolutely crazy. And you saw so much so fast that you became, I think that's one thing is if you really want to have a successful career, you want to work very, very hard. Um, I know people say that you shouldn't have regrets, but if you were looking back through your career, would there be anything that you would have changed how you'd approached it or any course corrections you would have made? Is there anything that comes to mind in terms of regrets? Not really. Um, You know, when you change careers, you do have small regrets because, uh, you see people that were at the same equivalent stage for you as you do very well by continuing on the path. And sometimes that's a bit annoying. Uh, you know, they, you have 
slight twinges of envy uh, when you see other people that maybe, let's say, for example, you thought you were a bit better than somebody, a bit smarter, a bit, you know, who knows. But you thought you were better, and then you go off into venture capital, completely retraining. You more or less start down at the beginning, and then they've gone off and become, you know, chairman of medicine at Johns Hopkins or something. You know, that gives you a sort of, because you could have been that, you could have, you know, done that. So you sort of, there's always those, when you change a lot, you, you, you do have those regrets. But compare that with what I consider to be the much better life of having done different things and seen different things. I just, it's incomparable, really. So I don't really regret anything. Um, no, I, I can't say I do, you know. Uh, I'd have liked to have done a bit better in everything I did, but who wouldn't? Uh, I don't think that's a regret. It's just an acknowledgement that you can be better. I hope you enjoyed that interview. You can find all my links by going to bigpicturemedicine.co.uk. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, then please consider leaving a review on iTunes. Thank you.